episode 354 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson, where lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and the views that we're about to express here do not reflect those of our institutions, our clients, our friends, our family, our children, our pets, or probably not even ours three weeks from today. Today, I'm going to be interviewing Ishan Sharma, who's a fellow at the Federation of American Scientists and the author of a recent uh, white paper toward a more responsible digital surveillance. Ishan, welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. And we're going to invite Ishan to weigh in if he is, it feels we've gone seriously wrong on any of these stories. But during the news roundup, we'll be talking to David Chris, who's founder of Culprit Partners and has a couple of decades of experience in intelligence, law enforcement, and security. David, good to have you. Thanks, Stuart. It's great to be here, as usual. Okay. And Jordan Schneider, uh, newly employed at the Rhodium Group and the host of the superb China Talk podcast and newsletter. Jordan, great to have you. And my colleague at Steptoe, Pete J. Dell, uh, who does international regulation and compliance. Pete, great to have you back. Thanks for having me, Stuart. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS and the host and chief provocateur for today's program. All right, uh, let's let's talk about how hard it is to decouple, uh, really decoupling the U.S. and China. If you've ever tried to, to, to stop two dogs after they've started mating, you'll know how painful this is. <laughs> I, but what's interesting, I think, is the the Chinese seem to be recapitulating some American experiences and the concern about the possibility that data is going to be infiltrated back to the United States has led to restrictions on Tesla's being used and by particular agencies. Jordan, does this mean that Elon Musk's honeymoon with China is slowly sliding away? Not necessarily, Stuart, though I think your first point to kick it off on the idea of sort of the the Chinese government and the U.S. government, you know, kind of doing the same dance, but just halfway across the world with regards to rethinking their, you know, supply chain exposure and sort of data exfiltration risks is something that both governments are really worried about and both governments don't have particularly good answers for You know, the Chinese government for a very long time now has been trying to get Western hardware and software out of its government systems. The 352 plan was announced two years ago. The goal was to replace 30% of computer and software by the end of 2020, another 50% this year, and the final 20% in 2022. There has been zero news about that plan, which was not also not featured in the the five-year plan, basically for, for what I assume are incredible challenges that come with ripping out Windows and Android and, you know, any Western software from uh, a tech stack of a modern, of a modern government, of, of, of a modern, excuse me. Is, is that the way that this, you, you, you can just assume that if they announced a goal and then they didn't tell you how they're doing, they're doing badly, right? Yeah, because otherwise they would be bragging about it. Yep. Or otherwise, they, or like the Chinese, you know, Kingsoft, like the Chinese software equivalents would be talking about how much, you know, how much more revenue they're getting from from winning all of these winning all of these contracts, right? So, coming back to the coming back to the Tesla case, the announcement was that the Chinese government is banning the use of Tesla cars in, you know, specialized like government 
housing, like there's all these like, you know, special housing projects for like the Air Force and like this bureau or what have you, as well as in, in you know, particularly sensitive military applications. It sort of reminds me of the U.S. ban on people in the armed forces using TikTok and that like it's a really popular thing that like you want to be using. But at the same time, you know, I still on my TikTok see armed forces, armed, armed services personnel all the time making videos. So, you know, it's a prestige product which has a 15% market share in the Chinese electric vehicle industry, the Tesla Model 3. And, you know, its future is still bright. But I think in general, the, you know, you know, from taking a step back, it's still very early days when it comes to the Chinese EV industry, which is almost certain to become the world's largest. There are many other domestic Chinese manufacturers from the likes of, you know, Xiaopang to Lee Auto to Neo, who was a Robinhood meme stock earlier in, in the second half of 2020, uh, all of whom the Chinese government would prefer to come out on top alongside, you know, the mainstays like SAIC and, and BYD, which are more sort of like state-owned, like, like, you know, GE type old school manufacturers, combustion manufacturers who are trying to make the leap into, into EV. But what you do know, you, you, you see, you see Tesla as kind of a, thus, the, I guess it's the stalking horse. It's the pace horse for the rest of Chinese industry and that the Chinese are going to treat Tesla well, as long as they continue to challenge the rest of the EV industry to, to match their gains. Cause I can't, it, it doesn't feel as though this is a stable situation for, for Tesla. And I, I, I see Elon Musk has already come out and said, uh, well, we would never hand over information to the U.S. government, which he doesn't actually get to say if the information's here and there's a subpoena here, he's going to have to turn it over. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there are, you know, clearly this was not the electric vehicle, you know, the, the, the ministries that are, are sort of signing all these deals with Elon Musk to make the factories and whatnot, who, who came out with this ban, right? There are, there are different equities and different parts of the Chinese government, um, which have different interests in, in, in mind. I think the, you know, the, the folks who do the, the planning around, around EVs, definitely see the value in having the world's leading manufacturer be in China, train engineers, train, you know, factory workers and OEMs into, into making top class stuff, which they hope will sort of have an Apple type effect where, you know, when you first saw Apple come in, there weren't uh, real smartphone, Chinese smartphone competitors. And now we have the likes of Oppo and Xiaomi and, and Huawei, and you go down the list of, of, an incredible, you know, incredibly strong smartphone manufacturing ecosystem, which has been able to flourish, sort of trailing the, you know, using using Apple as a as a as a tailwind for the for the entire Chinese industry. So let's let's flip over to, to Apple because they're also facing some some tougher choices in China than you'd have thought. Apple is famously undercutting people whose apps depend on routinely collecting a lot of information. Apple's going to say your app has to ask for that information. You can't just get access to the ID. And while Facebook is fighting it furiously, they don't seem to be making much headway in the U.S. In China, it looks as though Baidu and Tencent and TikTok have all gotten together and said, we have a workaround that basically gives us all the information we want. And Apple said, well, yeah, that it's not consistent with our rules. 
Uh, and now the question is, who's going to win that fight? I kind of find it hard to believe that Apple has enough juice, so to speak, to beat Baidu, Tencent, and ByteDance when the government can just reach out and say, no, you will take this. Yeah, I mean, Apple has lost comparable fights like this in the past. The WeChat uh, sort of mini app ecosystem is probably something that violates Apple app laws. There are also, you know, the, just the, the whole payments ecosystem is something that Apple Pay really tried to be a part of and completely failed. And, you know, now they realize that, like, if you can't use WeChat Pay or, or Alipay on your phone, no one will buy your phone. So they, you know, now have it. So, so now the, you know, so now iPhones are not trying to take a percentage of the, of the payments that, that work through those those alternate platforms. I mean, I think at the end of the day, the Chinese firms will win this fight. And, you know, the likes of Tencent has enough leverage to say, look, like, no one in China will buy a phone that does not have WeChat on it. So we have more Trump cards than you. And particularly if it's something that the entire Chinese internet industry can agree on, which is really, you know, really generally something where you have to wrangle cats, you know, all these companies are in brutal competition with each other and, you know, are suing each other left and right for anti-monopoly violations, which is something we'll get to in a sec. But yes, this is, this is, uh, this is a fight Apple is going uh, to lose, you know, the push to make themselves the sort of global privacy paragon can only work if other, if you don't have an entire, you know, their second most important market in the world fighting, fighting back against, against their vision of, of tracking. Apple's already kind of lost a, a similar fight in Russia where the Russians passed a law saying all phones will have uh, a bunch of Russian apps on them uh, to be installed or ready to be installed on startup. And Apple said, oh, the hell you say, no one touches our, you know, pristine user experience. And the Russians said, well, you, you either sell here with the, the pre-installed apps or you don't sell here. And Apple said, Oh, all right. On on reflection, our startup experience isn't quite that pristine. This this does suggest like the the wind has changed globally for tech firms who used to say, "Hey, we hold the keys to the future, and you need to follow our model." And now governments are saying, "You know, you hold the key to the future, but you're going to do what we say." Okay, uh, the U.S. is struggling with as we said, the same kinds of issues. And it looks as though the Biden administration is embracing with enthusiasm a Trump initiative to get hold of supply chain uh, and dangerous products, as the U.S. sees it, in the supply chain. Uh, Pete, we had heard signals that the executive order was a 13873 that puts the Commerce Department in charge of reviewing supply chain was not going that that regulation was not going to be rescinded now they're uh, within a week of Raimondo becoming secretary she's actually taken steps to implement it yeah exactly so this was a trump era <clears throat> 2019 executive order it's kind of i think i'd call it kind of the core of the future of us decoupling regulatory efforts it's the ICTS supply chain rule, information communications, technology and services supply chain rule. And yeah, exactly. Right out of the gate, Commerce Department issued multiple subpoenas last week on uh, Chinese companies trying to gather data to inform their you know, regulatory approach under this new <coughs> authority. So this, this was the authority that was you know, now infamously used to try unsuccessfully to ban 
TikTok and WeChat more broadly, you know, beyond military personnel in the U.S. And, you know, there had been some chamber and a lot of industry was coming out trying to highlight the costs and encourage the administration to, you know, pause and reconsider their approach to the rule. There was a regulatory analysis that came out just a couple of weeks ago, just putting forth some staggering numbers about the, you know, the regulatory cost of having to basically potentially rip and replace, you know, all Chinese technology. You know, there's not really a limiting principle here yet. But so, but, you know, the Commerce Secretary had a bumpy start with, you know, hold on her confirmation based on. So she's, uh, she's going to, nobody is going to out supply chain her from now on, right? Uh, right. Uh, that's usually the lesson people acquire when they're held over an issue like that. Do we know what's in the subpoenas? No, that's non-public right now, but you can expect that they're kind of, you know, they're asking about market share, vulnerabilities, security practices, and the like, trying to build, you know, a basic kind of baseline data set to use, you know, to enforce this just unbelievably broad regulatory power that they've been saddled with and, you know, seem to be embracing. Yep. So meanwhile, you know, I, of course, it is kind of remarkable the extent to which the Biden administration sounds like Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz. But what's even more remarkable is that uh, President Xi sounds a lot like Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz uh, on the power of tech platforms and the dangers that they pose. Uh, Jordan, is this just the general CCP, Chinese Communist Party, determination that there will be nobody who has serious independent power except through the party, and in particular, even through the the current ruling faction of the party, because uh, I get the sense that some of the problems with these tech billionaires is they let discredited factions share in the wealth. Uh, and that was probably the the straw that broke the camel's back. Yeah, I mean, as as someone who's who had the, my first experience of being retweeted by Senator Hawley last weekend, I've never felt more dirty in my life. <laughs> uh, I think it's a little more complicated than that. In terms of a, a lot of the regulatory pressures which you're seeing in China echo what you see in the US, you know, the, the dynamics of platform style, you know, tech capitalism, which have played out and made, you know, Amazon a dominant player and Google a dominant player and Facebook a dominant player in the West are the same things which have given the likes of Tencent and Alibaba and, and, and now ByteDance the same incredible amounts of scale in a way which, you know, both potentially squeezes out innovation as well as makes consumers frustrated. So, you know, there was a, there was a Washington, I think it was a Wall Street Journal, there was a Wall Street Journal story which kind of traced back the money and saw that, you know, some folks connected to a former, I think it was like the Jiang Zemin faction are, you know, might have made, you know, a 10, $50 million or something out of this. But what seems to me to be a broader, uh, a broader push and the reason that this is going past just and financial is that there's a lot of consumer pushback as well of things like big price, you know, like big data price discrimination where, you know, you know, there's like surge pricing, but only for people who they know are going to pay or with, you know, small, you know, small manufacturers of goods, like there's a there's a there's a, a policy on certain platforms where like if you sign up with Alibaba you can only sell at Alibaba and not go to you know Tmall or or Pinduoduo to sell your goods in turn making these these manufacturers these small these small businesses have to pick just one platform and run with it often at 
you know. And, and, uh, and how, do, how do these small businesses get She's ear? So, you know, it's something that I think bubbles up through the system and through the internet. And, you know, one of the things about the Chinese government is they are always looking out for, you know, even if, even if they're not, uh, even if you never see Chinese public opinion polls, you know, a big role of the party is to understand what people are angry and frustrated about. And there has been a, an increasing tech backlash over the past, let's say, two or three years where these tech firms went from, you know, say five or six years ago, the you know, consumer tech firms in particular went from these darlings and like the future of China to now something that a, a lot of people have a lot of suspicion over and aren't necessarily sure that all of the energy, you know, that, that it's the best thing for you know, the future of China to have all its best minds going to making recommendation algorithms for, for e-commerce platforms. So this is also coming at the, at the heels of the, of the most recent five-year plan, which while it had a, main, a, a serious focus on innovation, defined innovation very differently than the way a Tencent or an Alibaba would have three years ago and much more of a focus on, you know, biotechnology and semiconductors and, 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 and harder sciences, which is where the party leadership really wants to see the country's kind of creative energies flowing in the next. Ah, uh, yeah, okay. That's, it's, it, yes, it, it's just not sexy to be working on algorithms, and so they would they would rather people put that effort into something they could that, that the government could measure and see some potential value from. Ishan, you want to jump in? Yeah, actually. So I think Jordan highlighted probably what I find most interesting about this is is the distrust from Chinese consumers because I think that gives the CCP a brilliant positioning, essentially curating this public distrust, mirroring these antitrust considerations as speaking on behalf of the people, but then also telling these companies, which, you know, AI dragons, AI national champions, telling them you know, no one else will be your friend. And so it's a very strategic positioning that the CCP Oh, has yeah. No, it's terrific. It, that... they, 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 they can cut down the tall poppies at the same time <laughs> that they look like they are standing up for the little guy. Yeah. Uh, Okay, well, it, 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 that's a fascinating kind of sidelight on why she might be doing what he's doing. And we're going to see more of that. It's completely, you know, you can't ignore the fact that there is a sort of global consensus on a variety of things. And I, I, I think at least half the time it's wrong, but you can't ignore it. And the Chinese pay attention to it in the same way that the French government uh, or the Russian government pays attention to it, and, to, and certainly the U.S. So bad times coming for these big tech platforms everywhere. All right, let's, 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 let's leave China, at least for today, and actually come back to it through the back door. David, we finally got a report from the national intelligence agencies and from the Justice Department, Homeland Security Department about what happened during the, the 2020 election in terms of interference, either through trying to force memes into the discussion or actually interfere with voting. Were there any surprises at all in that in those reports? Not too many, actually, if you had been paying attention. There are really four main conclusions. The first one is the election was secure. That may be a shock to certain folks, maybe including yourself, Stuart, but 
No, the, no, uh, I, I, I believe that. Well, as they say, nobody really tried. Uh, yeah, so, well, yes, that is good, what they good, said. Good, exactly. Good news. Nobody really tried. <laughs> and that, by the way, you know, they, they, this is an interference with technical voting systems or infrastructure. This is what the report actually calls election interference as opposed to election influence, which is a distinct yes. thing. It's things like ballot counting, voter registration. And that, that conclusion is actually consistent not only with the DOJ, DHS reporting presently, which is totally derived from the IC's assessment, but also with earlier IC predictions made during the Trump administration last August. So it's very much not a surprise. Obviously, foreign actors did try to make us believe that voting had been hacked, that election interference had been successful, that voter fraud was rampant. And in this, of course, they had many domestic supporters and allies. But again, trying to make us believe false things is what this report calls election influence. And as distinct from election interference, no, no U.S. government agency thinks we had interference. And again, that was what the Trump administration's IC predicted last August. And the only the only dissent or the only a disagreement among the, the parties is over China, whether yep. China tried to influence the election. And right. I, 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 I was I actually thought the dissent was probably more persuasive, but the disagreement is incredibly narrow. It's yeah, I mean, it's pretty weak tea. Honestly, Stuart, I can see why, you know, it's worth highlighting. But what what the report says with high confidence coming from all the agencies is that China considered but did not undertake an influence campaign, mainly because it just didn't see a favorable cost-benefit ratio in doing that. It, it's not because the Chinese love democracy or want to promote U.S. you know, institutions and so forth. And it's a high confidence judgment, but with the NIO for cyber taking a footnote in dissent, the footnote says, but only with moderate confidence as opposed to high, that some of Beijing's routine efforts to influence U.S. policy, which, you know, everybody tries to influence policy, were also intended to indirectly affect U.S. candidates' political processes and voter preferences, meeting the definition for election interference that's used in the report. But it's, it's you know, it's a little bit weak as something you can really hang your hat on. You can't tell the difference, right? If, 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 if you've got a, a narrative that you're trying to force on, on the American public that is good for you and bad for the country, the fact that you do it during an election is a kind of election interference, I suppose. But not they, so you kind, of, you kind of end up saying, well, they, they kept doing this and they knew or hoped that it would have an effect on the election. So I'd call that intellectual, election interference. And other people say, no, no, they were just doing what they do. It's, I think it's a little bit like that. I mean, what the focus of the Chinese efforts are, are on things like TikTok, 5G, Hong Kong, so forth. And the question, I think, is did that you know, bleed over into having some kind of indirect effect because the candidates, Biden and Trump, lined up a little differently on those issues? That's really in stark contrast, though, to what the report describes, say, about Russia and Iran, the report says Russia had an, uh, a pro-Trump, anti-Biden, covert influence campaign to include getting at proxies close to Trump and so forth. 
and the Iranians had an, an anti-Trump campaign. The, the assessment is that it wasn't overtly pro-Biden, but again, that's also slicing the baloney pretty thin there because in a two-candidate race, if you're anti-one, kind of... That was how the 2016 election got reported originally because the, the, right. the, the, the intelligence community was sure that Putin hated Hillary and maybe he started to like Trump, but it was wow. really, it was it was clearly a determination that the uh, Putin government was trying to defeat Hillary, both in the primary and in the general election. That was reported because our press is a little biased as well they uh, were rooting for, for Trump, which- You and Judge Silberman, much. Stuart. Yes, okay. I, uh, I uh. Quite, uh, proudly join him, uh, proudly join him. Uh, so th uh, <laughs> this thing is, this thing makes a distinction between the Russian effort, which is multifaceted and both covert and overt, and it's pro and anti. The Iranian thing is a little more targeted. There's a reference to a thousand social media posts as one of its highlighted elements, of which many were taken down by the social media companies. There's not a real effort here, it's worth noting, to rigorously compare in size, scope, sophistication, the various governments' different efforts. But the Iranian effort looks more targeted. And there is, of course, no effort here, and they're very sort of express about it, to assess impact on right. U.S. voters because they don't want to be getting into assessing U.S. persons' political preferences and the way in which covert action influences those, you know, those preferences. So they just more or less describe what they think the other uh, countries are doing and, and then let go from there. If I could just do sort of one shameless sort of self-promotion, if people are interested in election interference and election influence and the larger universe of covert action, last week I did a podcast with CIA's historian David Robarge on the history of U.S. covert action on the Lawfare podcast. And there is a, a faux pearl-clutching moment where I say, surely, David, we haven't done any election interference on behalf of the United States. And he walks me through some of the 50 publicly Not recently, covert actions that, uh, <laughs> that did, did do so in Western Europe and elsewhere. So, you know, you can learn more about that if you want to. Oh, thanks. Thanks. So lots of fun. So I got one there. question about this and then we'll move on. Yeah. But uh, yeah. I thought there was a telling moment where a couple of otherwise respectable or apparently respectable journalists tweeted that this report said that the Hunter Biden laptop was a, uh, a Russian influence operation which of course it doesn't really say, and they had, they had to walk that back, but I thought that was significant because if they had concluded that that was a Russian influence operation, we probably would have heard it, which raises the real question, you know, why the hell we have not excoriated Twitter for claiming, oh, we're not gonna let anybody see that because it's a Russian influence operation. Uh, that, that, is, that may be the biggest interference with our election in 2020 was which was the suppression of that story and uh, i i think the the reporters who insisted they were vindicated by a report that didn't vindicate them are kind of revealing the weakness of the, what they did i mean putting aside the truth falsity or otherwise of the hunter biden laptop story and i believe it is still the subject of an ongoing doj investigation which I suspect Merrick Garland will not touch with a 10-foot pole, but we'll see. This report talks about Russian efforts to spread information that casts 
Biden and the Biden family as corrupt, and they make that part of the overall effort. But it certainly does not go so far as to take a position on what Hunter Biden did or didn't do. You know, again, they wouldn't want to front run the United States attorney and I think Delaware or whoever it is that has the the hot potato yeah, ticket yeah. on that little although that investigation is mostly into his taxes i thought and 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 the ev the evidence is on the laptop so the sooner or later if there's evidence on the laptop we're going to hear that they're relying on it and i'm i'm looking forward to jack dorsey's apology and indication that he thinks that maybe trump should have won the election if it hadn't been interfered with but i don't well, think let's we're all get hold that. our breath waiting for that <laughs> right starting now <laughs> Sounds good. All right. Well, while we're holding our breath, <clears throat> let's hold our breath first for something useful coming out of the United Nations. I, I can't say this is something useful coming out of the United Nations, but it's better than my very low expectations. Pete, what happened at the UN General Assembly? Yeah, I guess maybe by UN standards, this is something, <laughs> but it's, it's not a lot. So it was a report by a working group under the auspices of the General Assembly that set out a consensus among the international community on some norms for responsible state behavior in cyberspace. So I think what's new here is that this is the broadest ever consensus on this topic. So I, I think Iran disassociated itself from the conclusions in the report, but otherwise, yeah. But they didn't largely... even vote against it. So you know, they, they, right. you're right. This is this is this is something where the entire UN got behind some kind of weak tea statements on cyberspace. Right, right, and you know the the norms themselves. A lot of them were you know largely entirely pre-existing. You know, just they had been adopted by bodies that had a narrower you know membership you know, largely the major developed economies. So, you know, it is something to bring the entire developing world on board with something that they probably care not at all about. This is just not on their agenda at all. Or maybe they do now. You know, everybody's getting screwed by ransomware. So, uh, you know, there, there may be a couple of countries where that's a net contributor to their balance of payments. But on the whole, if you're in the global middle class, you've probably suffered at the hands of hackers. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm thinking of kind of the, you know, the guineas of the world and the like, you know, this is just not on the top of their agenda. But, you know, there was a lot of reference to capacity building in here. And so that probably greased the skids to get them on, on board the train. So why not? So, you know, in terms of substance, there's not much there. I thought it was interesting that they mentioned election interference as, you know, a bad thing. It seems like that might have uh, scuttled consensus. No, no, because that Putin's campaign for the last 10 years has been to show us that what we did in 2011 to try to encourage his opponents was strategically a bad idea and and something we should never try again. And I think he might have actually won that fight. Uh, so Ishan, uh, your thoughts on this? Yeah. So so I mean, I I also thought the capacity building was really interesting and also probably really important. You know, there's estimates saying that by 2030, you know, the remaining half the world will gain access to the internet. And I feel like you know, it's probably likely those will not be secure access points. And there's probably a lot of access to the confidentiality of sensitive information. So I think in terms of usefulness for the UN, it was, it was really exciting to see this attention and focus on, a. I think there was a subtitle about people and that, you know, people should not be abused and their, their sensitive information should be protected. So I hope that 
kind of dialogue continues going forward. I'm not sure, and I, I think uh, that, that that's of... that's kind of table stakes to get the UN General Assembly, which is dominated <laughs> by poor countries, on. They, they 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 usually say about these things. Well, there needs to be something that helps underdeveloped countries either develop or use the technologies. That's I, it doesn't surprise me that they would say that. Uh, but it it the fact that they were willing to sign on in exchange for something like that does say they actually don't hate the principles either. Well, I also think it's it's probably strategic to encourage that type of that that type of conversation for capacity building, not from I mean, I, I think we see a lot of this growing AI nationalism, data localization policies that uh, a lot of the digitizing world is adopting. And so, you know, I can imagine that would increase in, on, under the auspices of trying to make it more secure and end up biting them right in the butt again. And so, so I, I do think that this is probably a really important measure to focus on. I'm just not sure if it will be focused on going forward. Well, you know, there's a, there's a big interest in develop, the developed world in having at least some rudimentary police and judicial capabilities to deal with cybercrime all everywhere in the world because it's uh, you know the the half of the world that is coming online now is a lot poorer than the half that's on there now and so stealing money from the other half is a very attractive way to front your costs say of getting online and Policing that kind of activity is something that the locals are going to have to do. So I, I actually do expect that you'll see a lot of effort to build some basic capabilities everywhere, including New Guinea. All right, Pete, the Cyberspace Solarian Commission, you know, they, they issued a report that was a good report. I agreed with big chunks of it, but they that was a year or more ago, and they are not going away. I think it was before the pandemic started. They have issued new reports. They're writing op-eds. They're telling the Biden administration, as they told the Trump administration, how to do what the commission recommended. And they're having, you know, some impact because they are well-organized and they have an agenda that they put together a year or so ago. What we're, what we're looking at now is there's, a, there's been a uh, report by the, one of the leaders of the staff kind of critiquing what the Biden administration's supply chain policy has been and mostly giving them, I would have said, a B plus. Yeah, exactly. So I'm I'm glad to see the commission, you know, s- s- maintaining its role. It's, it's actually my college classmate Mike Gallagher, who you know I'm glad to see him oh, yeah. wearing multiple hats, not just his China Hawk tough guy Marine hat. So you know, I think the commission's had a you know good role so far. They've been reauthorized again in the NDAA for this year. Several, you know, as you kind of hinted at, some several of their previous recommendations have already been adopted in this year's NDAA. So you know. It's a relatively rare body that's having, you know, concrete and, you know, continual impacts on, on the law and policy. So it's, you know, they're having, they're, you know, they're a good driver of progress in this area. They are, except I, you know, I, I wish I agreed with them on the things that they make the biggest fuss about. The idea that there had to be a cyber director in the White House who was Senate confirmed was always inconsistent with how the White House works and not a good idea. And they're they're continuing to beat the drums to say, because they haven't named a cyber director, the Biden administration is not doing a good job in organizing for cyber defense, which is nuts. The, the, the cyber director is going to be 
outranked by the person who's already been designated to focus on that, Ann Newberger. She's been given a deputy national security advisor role. And introducing Senate confirmation into a White House office is a recipe for having the president never really trust you. Yeah. And this, and this, 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 this op-ed does not say that. This was from uh, Robert Morgus, but he does say uh, we have to have one supply chain agency, and it's got to be the Commerce Department, not the Homeland Security Department. And yet, most of the expertise on the civilian side of cybersecurity is going to come from the Department of Homeland Security, and the Commerce Department is going to have tenth the number of smart people who focus on that industry. And so it's crazy to, to insist that the Commerce Department, which now has the, the, the lead for, the, for regulation, should also have pushed the Department of Homeland Security, CISA, aside for making determinations about the technology. I, so I, I, I love their basic concept that they should stay involved, but I, I'm really having trouble agreeing with some of the things that they are insisting on. Yeah. I mean, I think the recommendation to put commerce up front in more of a clear role, I mean, you know, there's some good reason behind it. I mean, that you know, there's a lot of regulatory regimes where you've got, you know, economic sanctions, you know, a lot of the key decision makings made by the State Department, but yep. OFAC implements and Treasury, you know, they've got a different perspective, the regulatory perspective being out front, you know, in some contexts, I think in this context, I think it makes a lot of sense. You know, you have your reach back and your recommendations from people who actually know what they're doing, and then you have the tools to implement. Okay, well, I, 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 can't, I can't argue with you on that. The CISA and DHS in general are very slow to pull out regulatory hammers. And the Commerce Department is used to it. Uh, and so maybe, maybe if you want tough regulation, you're better off asking the Commerce Department to take the lead than, than letting DHS, which is a lot more comfortable giving people soft incentives than regulatory mandates. Yeah, and you've got Commerce, you know, engaged on the export restriction side may, may make sense to have the same agency looking at both sides of the coin on the supply chain issue as well import okay well last story because i can't resist it because the european data protection agencies have been a consistent uh, and reliable whipping boy uh, for this podcast really from the start there they should be a sustaining member of our patreon community uh, the european data protection agencies have discovered oh my god there's law here too. So we can't just say, oh, we don't like you. We're going to fine you. And a lot of companies have begun saying, well, if you've got a fine for me, I've got a lawsuit for you. And they're winning the lawsuit. Uh, the most interesting argument here is that Austria, Germany, apparently both have a notion that you can't hold a company liable unless you can say, who at the company did something wrong. You can't just say the company in the abstract altogether, you know, everybody holding hands did it and we don't know who did it. You have to say this person screwed up. And they've begun turning back, the courts have begun turning back decisions saying, well, you didn't tell us who violated the privacy of these people and therefore we're not going to enforce a, a fine against the, the company. The data protection agencies have always been 
you know, all hat and no cattle, as they say in Texas. Great, great talkers, not so good at doing. Now they have to do, and, and they are really coming a cropper. I, that's what this Wall Street Journal article says to me. Couldn't happen to a nicer gang of people since they've also gotten in the way of national security and law enforcement and a host of other things that I won't uh, belabor again here. All right, I, that's it for our news roundup. Thanks, guys. I want to turn now to our interview with Ishan Sharma. Uh, Ishan, as I said at the start, is a fellow at the Federation of American Scientists. He's written a report called A More Responsible Digital Surveillance. And Ishan, let me ask you uh, why you wrote the report. What was the impetus? Was this uh, an FAS uh, priority or did you go to them and say, this is what I want to do? So, so really, this was, I think, a, a self-initiated effort. I think in the last decade, we've seen a number of powerful surveillance technologies and methods emerge, like, you know, advanced facial recognition, predictive policing. And I think these technologies are arriving at a time of a global decline in democracy and human rights, as well as a resurgence in authoritarianism. And so the standpoint, part of the report is, you know, imagine what the next few decades are going to hold. Arguably, the authoritarian model has become more stable and accessible than ever before. And it's not just, you know, China or dictators abusing this technology, it's Western democracies as well, exporting and abusing this. And so with the, the standpoint that, you know, by 2030, the remaining half the world to gain access to the internet, there's a real inflection point here. And the thesis of the, the paper is really, you know, US and democratic allies are going to expect other countries to be responsible and how they use this new age surveillance tech. We have to model it ourselves. And we're pretty far from that as I get into the report. So I, how did you end up writing the report? What did you actually do? Uh, I, this strikes me as the kind of report I'd like to write, because it looks like you, you called up a bunch of people, talked to them, uh, and uh, then wrote down the, the conclusions that you drew from your conversations with them. Absolutely. It was uh, sort of a dream gig, if I'm going to be honest. Um, <laughs> I, I, so, so I sat down with about 40 different stakeholders, representatives from the ACLU and the NYU Policing Project, to employees at AWS and Palantir Tech and police chiefs, government officials. And the goal was to really combine important conversations happening over racial justice and police reform with conversations about digital authoritarianism in the foreign policy world. Um, I think the two are inherently related, but there's limited dialogue between the two. And so, you know, I asked them questions like, what does a responsible system of surveillance look like to you? And what do you think are the major obstacles here? But also more granular stuff, like which actors should be responsible for the storage, security, and privacy of public surveillance data? Is it the police departments? Is it city council, private companies? Aggregating those into to general observations in, you know, academia, industry, civil society, et cetera, and then generating a list of, of recommendations based off those. So actually, let me let me ask you this question, because I looked at the people that contributed to the report and you certainly got you got police departments and you got NGOs and you got a variety of other folks to contribute. But I can't looking at this list, see anybody about whom I would say, oh, yeah, they're probably a Republican. Do you have any conservatives on here that you talk to at all? So, I mean, I think I don't really I wasn't really trying to approach this effort from a partisan lens per se, right, though I right. understand probably in, in your experience, you might've encountered the surveillance. Well, but I, you know, just for diversity's <laughs> sake, you know, half the country votes Republican. You have a bunch of very uh, mainstream Democrats here and a lot of lefty NGOs. And, you know, you have 
police chiefs from places where you can't be further to the right than a mainstream Democrat and still be chief of the police department. But that's kind of looks like it. And I guess there are some businesses. So, so right, exactly. I think this is more of an issue about gaining stakeholder input from, for the example, industry, right? So in, in terms of thinking about policy, and I would say probably the interviews with uh, a lot of the industry representatives, it did tend to kind of weigh we go beyond, I think, some of the mainstream NGO ACLU type recommendations. But I think that was my main focus in diversity, less exclusively, oh, asking what are your, you know, are you Democrat or Republican? And well, more the, reason about, like, I, the, the reason I say that is that you kind of said democracy, we, democracy, we value democracy, we like democratic technology. And it's not clear that technology is democratic or non. Mm-hmm. And we also wanted technology that meets the requirements of the left in the United States in terms of racial justice and the like. But there are a very substantial body of people, including in the communities you described as over-policed, who think that they what they want is to be over-policed because crime is a problem. So the, the constituency that actually wants criminals caught and locked up, not very well represented in this group of organizations, is it? So so actually, I would push back on that. So so one, I don't think, you know, racial justice should be a partisan issue, right? And I don't think that that's necessarily a bold or unique claim. But I think to your point about, you know, over-policing, some of the really interesting conversations I had with police chiefs were oftentimes communities want to have surveillance tech in the area. Yeah. And to place that type of technology in, for example, like a rich neighborhood where the main issues are, you know, frat boys party. It would be a waste and, of time. You know, if artificial yeah. intelligence could die of boredom, it would. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, so that's the point. I think the real issue that I'm trying to get at with this report is, you know, how we acquire, how police departments acquire and like the procurement process, but also mm-hmm. the use process itself just is a total black box. And that's a real danger in terms of having meaningful democratic accountability and oversight. So, okay, so really, I, I, I buy that. I, the notion then is if the technology is not inherently uh, democratic or not, then the difference between it's being used in China and it's being used uh, in Georgetown is how we decided to use it and what kinds of crimes we're enforcing. Exactly. And, and there's a real potential to lead here, at least in contrast to how China has been deploying this domestically, but also been exporting this internationally. I, I think that that's a strategic concern because surveillance really does get at the heart of a nation's ability to promise security and stability. And clearly, you know, there's immense demand in the last, what, it was, I think in 2018, there was some 18 countries that were importing surveillance tech from China. And now, there's over 80 countries. That's a massive increase. So, so these tech, this tech is not just going to go away. We can't just pretend as if banning it is going to solve all our issues. We have to get really smart about how this is being used. And I think there's a lot of room there. And a lot of the conversations I had, there's you know a lot of potential to to move forward in a bipartisan way, which is, I think, more of the focus okay. of my recommendation. This is your determination not to be annoyingly woke. And I, I do appreciate it. <laughs> uh, and so uh, it, it, fair enough. I, I look. I, I think this the current situation poses real problems for people who think of themselves as belonging to ACLU frame of mind on this stuff. They would probably like less use of this technology. They'd love to be able to restrict its use in non-democratic countries, but 
if they do, the Chinese will just say, yeah, fine, we'll take that market. And you're struggling, if I read this report right, to say, how do we deny success to Chinese tech, which we know doesn't care a whit about the liberties of the people that are being policed, and ensure success for more democratic technologies without just saying, fine, if it's made in the U.S., we want it sold. Right. So, so, so two, I think, so, so two big recommendations from the report. One is like, you know, creating this actual like digital surveillance oversight committee that has some sort of formalized, meaningful certification, recertification process, but also serves as kind of an informational clearinghouse to inform, for example, nuanced export controls or, you know, gain information on how companies are actually doing their due diligence and what are the standards and intended use cases bright lines, etc. So, so I think so that's your, your idea is, is basically there should be somebody at the federal level who looks at these new technologies, uh, the surveillance technologies, and says, what's good about them? What's not good? What could be tinkered with encourages people to, to meet best practices as it defines it, and then says, okay, now that you're blessed, one, we're going to encourage people to buy it in the US, and we're going to authorize its sale abroad, and maybe even if I'm reading this right, subsidize it. So exactly. So so there is the meaningful certification component for which, you know, a variety of multi-stakeholder communities should be a part of, you know, historically surveilled communities, but also tech ethicists and privacy scholars, et cetera. But the probably the most controversial recommendation of the report is this idea for a democratic surveillance accelerator. And so essentially it's this principle that, you know, there just having export controls in this technology, similar to bans, are, are not going to solve our long-term issues. And this is kind of why I was a bit disappointed with the, the National Security Commission on AI's recommendation, which is essentially just to restrict exports of high-end AI chips that are being used in technology. It's, you know, the surveillance industry is globalized. All other countries can gain access to this technology from plenty of other countries besides the United States. Well, maybe so, not the AI chips, right? Do you think the AI chips are, are now commoditized? So, so, well, I think it probably ties into the conversation happening earlier, which is that in, in a longer term sense, you know, China's trying to develop that indigenous capacity. And sure, there hasn't been, you know, a lot of reports on how effective that has been. And it's not as simple they're, as- They're going to get there. They're, 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 you're right. They, they've got enough money- so that exactly. they can get there if this is a high enough priority. And I'm well aware of the intricate conversations taking place and how you can't just throw money at this issue, right? But, you know, the, the point being is that, that we have to get smarter about how we are trying to promote democratic values internationally. And it's not just to, you know, pretend as if the United States or the Wassenaar arrangement is capable of restricting like exports and that takes care of all of our issues. So the controversial like, you know, <laughs> accelerator process, the idea is, you know, it's, it's not intended to catapult U.S. leadership to the forefront of global surveillance industry, but it's to provide an opportunity to signal to, to U.S. industry on certain value design criteria. So what are things that we really appreciate while introducing, you know, more baseline accountability into the expectations for exporting this tech. So, so what does that really mean, right? Well, that means things like require, if we're going to export this tech, it means requiring technical firewalls installed within the technology to be able to, you know, software features that enable real-time control or monitoring of misuse and be able to lock those operations remotely. It means, you know, requiring Wait, remotely, you know, operational meaning training. We, we, tell, we tell these companies are supposed to tell other governments, oh, I'm sorry, you're not allowed to do that. 
we're locking so not out. exactly oh i'm sorry you're not allowed to do that it's more like are the recorded instances in which this technology is being abused can we restrict in the form of you know for example preventing software updates and and i think this is this is actually coming out of so so the bureau of industry and security put out a public comment a little while ago right and mm -hmm. trying to really tackle this complex export control issue and the one of the recommendations was microsoft claiming that there should be this technical firewall component, that this is actually a much smarter type of control that would restrict how governments can abuse this technology or at least create that informational awareness on how this technology- well, Certainly Microsoft controls us all through the <laughs> granting and withholding of updates. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, and so, so, I mean, I think, I, so, so there's this, this leading scholar, Sheena Greitens, who had interviewed on, on this issue, who's also, I think, identifies with conservative values. But, you know, she put out this analysis that there is immense demand internationally, and it's driven by subnational actors. You know, the idea being that one person's surveillance may be another person's solution to traffic congestions or waste management or crime. And, and so there is a lot of demand here. And I think we have to think, how can we fill that demand in a way that actually upholds democratic values. And maybe it's too optimistic. Maybe I'm too idealistic. You might end up losing all your friends on both sides of this <laughs> debate, right? <laughs> you're basically saying we should spend money developing new and better surveillance technology. Probably, I would say not better surveillance tech, but portable privacy preserving safeguards within the surveillance tech. Okay. that we can require as standards internationally. And, but, you know, some of this ought to be a feature that the customers would want. They would probably want the features that would allow them to ensure that unauthorized people don't get access to this uh, information, right? They, they want only authorized people to have access to that information. They don't want uh, their habits sold to the highest bidder. And on the other hand, the idea that it's a feature that you paid for it, but we're not going to let you use it if we don't like what you're doing tomorrow there's there's no the us would never buy technology like that even if you know the it was a decision being made by the united kingdom which we share a lot of values with but we're <laughs> not going to let them tell us how to do our policing definitely so, so i think i think this is really a, a broader diplomatic push right the, the one part of these recommendations is not going to solve the digital authoritarian issue but in in answering your question i think it's useful to think about like the general market that's at play. So we think, you know, China's exports are, you know, providing a pretty dominant part of the market. They are gaining access very much so to countries' biometric data at scale. Like that is a very, Absolutely. there's an immense risk and the contracts that exist are just not guaranteeing or preserving the digital rights and privacies of the digitizing world, which I think is an immense issue for the future of the, the internet, et cetera. That's like, that's a different story. So, so I think one really beneficial- Well, maybe, you know, if, you, if, if, if I, I assume that one of your ideas, in fact, I thought I saw it, uh, was there ought to be something about the kinds of terms that and the sorts of data sharing that are allowed. And you, yes, you would expect that it would play very well in say Brazil, to say the information that's collected in this fashion needs to be kept in Brazil. Exactly. I mean, essentially, it's a virtuous, it's an unvirtuous cycle of growth for surveillance tech companies to vacuum up the world's data and then provide, you know, country-specific types of algorithms that, you know, guarantee the justice. It, it, and so there, there is market incentive for these companies to swallow these data. 
the part of the accelerator is like, you know, we'll, we'll offset some of that cost if you provide these like incentives. Okay, we won't be siphoning your data. We will not be trying to exploit your citizens' countries or your, <laughs> your country's citizens' biometric data at scale. I think that that might pose a market advantage to enter in this sphere. You know, maybe, although, you know, I, I, uh, there was just a story that told us that Israel uh, has vaccinated a larger proportion mm -hmm. of its population than any country, uh, uh, any sizable country uh, in the world. And that one of the key factors in closing the deal with, I think it was Pfizer, was they said, we have data on all of our patients because we have a kind of HMO system as four big HMOs and you can have all the data or you can use all the data for determining the impact of the, the vaccine. So they deliberately used access to their citizens data as a way to get favored treatment in the delivery and pricing of the vaccine. And I don't think anybody in Israel is going to say, oh, that was a bad deal. So it's not clear to me that people are going to rush to say, no, you can never have our citizens data. So, so yes, I think that that's, that's, that's probably a fair point. I think the issue comes, and, and that just reminded me also in, in general about, you know, being more democratic in your usage of surveillance is, in cases like the pandemic, you have a real incentive to be able to deploy contact tracing at scale. What happens oftentimes with surveillance, but other issues in general, is there's mission creep and how this technology then gets abused later on. And so I think what happened in Singapore is that initially the contact tracing surveillance system was then converted into use for criminal law enforcement, which I think is a really tough issue to grapple with. How do you just define that up front? What are the limitations? How could this be? Well, and do you want to really? I mean, you could, it's easy to say, I don't want to have mission creep. But then when somebody says, uh, my son was murdered, right. uh, I want to know who was in the room with him. And you have the data to be to, to say, oh, I'm sorry, but that's only to be used to make sure he doesn't have COVID. Uh, you know, nobody's going to do that. There, there are really, I think, complex questions that you have to resolve in those types of discussions, I would submit to you that it's important to at least be more transparent in how those discussions are taking place. I think right now where we're at it is, is nowhere remotely close to that. Like, sure, we have Fourth Amendment protections. Sure, we have civil liberties that, you know, prevent over-intrusiveness. But as a lot of the stakeholders I interviewed will tell you, the judiciary is estimated to be like 10 years behind the deployment of these tech. You know, you had stingrays that had not received any consistent federal judiciary guidance until, you know, 10 years later. And that, by that point, they're widespread or there's another technology in place. So, I mean, I can't agree more on, on, on that circumstance. And I think mission creep is just an ongoing attention that we need to focus on. And my, my idea is transparency might help with that. But Okay. No, so last question. Uh, the Europeans had a surprisingly large tech sector that did certain kinds of surveillance, phone surveillance and hacking of accounts that they sold as a service to a number of unappetizing regimes. And that has produced a kind of reform for the first time in history Europe is proposing to restrict exports that the U.S. has not yet enthusiastically embraced. Usually it's the other way around. What's your sense of 
how that is working and wh which of your ideas do you think is going to get a tryout in Europe? Hopefully all of them right now. I think so, so one, it's not just their, their sector has been, you know, exporting this tech. It's also that there was this privacy international report that came out a, a few weeks ago detailing how, you know, EU governments and, and, and companies are providing training on how this should be used. And it's really, really sketchy. Like you look at the slides that they had and it's quite worrisome. So, so I think the, the move for cyber surveillance controls is is a really important one it's, it's a landmark decision that you know extends authority that was not initially granted in the wasson arrangement it's probably one of the first steps away from right. th that arrangement. It's, it's being administered i mean it was at at a level of principle they said well we ought to control this but individual governments make the decision whether to grant licenses and as we've seen they can grant blanket licenses they can they can grant licenses over lunch i it it, it seems that actual implementation will depend on individual countries all of whom have a kind of home turf interest in their companies succeeding. So do we know that, there's, that this groundbreaking principle is actually being applied in any significant way? So, so I'm not I'm not fairly certain, but I do think, and, and part of one of the exciting elements of the proposals, I got to speak with one of the front runners for the Bureau of Industry and Security and his kind of take on, you know, in general, what should happen. And he was really excited about this because right now the U.S. does not have authority to exact and used controls, right? I'm, I'm sure you're probably steeped mm -hmm. in of these conversations. And so, so if we're going to be serious about how to architect export controls on surveillance, we have to be able to extend authority beyond just cases of weapons of mass destruction, et cetera, which is the, the current limitation. And, and, you know, start considering, you know, mass surveillance, human rights violations, et cetera, to be able to, the entity list only goes so far. We can't, it's, it's kind of like a bludgeon with the entire export control system. And so, the the thing that i'm really excited for here is sure you know these eu cyber surveillance restrictions require almost you know unilateral <laughs> developments and there's kind of complex incentives at play with you know countries wanting to promote their own industry i would submit that you know there is potential for the us to take leadership in partner first extending those end use controls but then partnering with industry leaders for example idemia in france and and sort of creating what is the baseline standard here that's more of what i'm trying to get out with the accelerator but also in general you know with partnerships both and outside of the eu ideally in, in some theory with israel that might be difficult to architect but with other countries throughout europe i mean the point being that didn't you didn't you say that you thought that the T3, which was India, Israel, and the U.S., was a model <laughs> for the uh, cooperation? Yeah. So so talk about bold diplomatic moves, right? So so right now T3, I think is 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 solely really focused on on 5G strategic considerations, right. economic considerations, etc. And so I looked at this partnership and I'm like, wow, wait, India, world's largest democracy, in demand of surveillance, especially. Israel, industry leader globally in providing surveillance tech, you know, there, there's some real potential here to, to start, you know, creating some baseline standards, both of which obviously care a lot about the future of democracy in general, you know, with some, some, <laughs> some hardcore, you know, U.S. diplomatic messaging and, and leadership on this, I, I do think it could become reoriented to, to creating standards around how surveillance is being exported, but also being used. Again, maybe that's a bit idealistic, but but I, it, the the arrangement makes sense to me. 
So, okay, you're 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 allowed to be uh, idealistic uh, okay. at this stage of your career and at the working for the Federation of American Scientists. So, Ishan Sharma, that uh, it's terrific. Uh, thank you. The report is a more responsible digital surveillance from the FAS. Uh, thanks to you. Thanks to Dave, David, Chris, to Jordan Schneider for to Pete Jidel uh, for joining us. I uh, and thanks to Weissman Sound Design for our music. This has been episode 354 of the Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Mm-hmm.